When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and I'm completely excited about today's guest. We have one of the absolute brightest minds in the retirement income planning industry joining us, Dr. Wade Fowl, PhD, a professor of retirement income at the American College in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, which is my alma mater. Uh, He serves as the curriculum director for the college's retirement income certified professional designation, the RICP. He's also a principal and director for McLean Asset Management. He holds a doctorate in economics from Princeton University, publishes frequently in a wide variety of academic journals, uh, and in general, it's an honor to have him on our show. Dr. Fowl, welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is going to be fun because we, we spend a lot of time on our show talking to folks who um, are either contemplating retirement or working with folks who are retired from a qualitative and a, a social standpoint. And today we get to dig into a little bit of the quantitative, a little bit of the math and strategy around it. And the RIC program, which candidly I, I completed a couple of years ago and thought was excellent, even for someone seasoned in our profession, does a great job of, of illustrating some of the challenges in creating income and determining the sources where that income should come from. So can you tell us first a little bit about the genesis of that program, because it is relatively new, uh, and why it's just so important for for folks to know how to do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, really the genesis came from starting to recognize how when people retire, their ability to handle risk really changes. It's kind of a completely different outlook in terms of before retirement, when you're saving and accumulating assets, you, the risk change when, when you're retired, you no longer are working, you no longer have that salary, you have to spend from your assets and you don't know how long the money needs to last. You, you don't know kind of how much you're able to spend. And when you do spend from investment portfolios in retirement, the volatility of the markets can have a bigger impact. And you have to worry about different potential large expenditures like long-term care and, and big healthcare bills and so forth. And so, it really requires a different outlook, and that's how it evolved as retirement income planning as a distinct field within financial planning. So it, I assume that some of this also stems from the aging of the baby boomers, because this generation has an incredible appetite for advice, particularly financial advice, and now they're reaching that tipping point where I think a, a boomer retires every two seconds or something. And so um, it, w- was that sort of part of the timing around this, was recognizing this enormous part of the population that had to learn a completely new skill set? Right. I mean, there's a lot of people entering into retirement. And also, the kind of the situations change today as well, where retirement's becoming more difficult. There's less ability to rely on those traditional company pensions where the your employer was handling all the, the risks of figuring out how long your money needs to last. You've got to figure that out for yourself. And as well, people continue to live longer and longer. So when retirement first developed, maybe people had to plan for a 15 or 20 year retirement and they had the pensions to help cover that. 
Now they may be looking at 30 or even 40 years in retirement, and they've got to figure out how to do that on their own. And there's a lot of people entering that phase of life. And so, yeah, there's a, it's a hot topic and something that people really need more guidance for. I think not only do consumers need more guidance, but I do think the financial advisory community is behind the curve in getting some of that education, which is why I'm glad the American College is providing it. Because for many, many years, the financial planning was often confused with investment planning or asset management, which is really only a component, of course, to the financial process. But there was also this idea, it was almost a time value of money problem. You make X dollars, you contribute X dollars at Y percent for Z years and poof, you have this nest egg. No one ever talked about what do you do now? Now, how do you, how do you preserve it? How do you withdraw it? How do you manage the, the different taxes between ordinary income or capital gains or return of principal? And then the hot potato of how do you manage it from an estate standpoint if you're, if you're in a situation where you have assets that you have not outlived, which of course all of us want to make sure we do, um, when you leave money behind to other heirs, whether it be a spouse or the next generation, how do you do that in an efficient way so that your hard-earned money doesn't all go to, to taxes as well? So um, I think the, the financial advisory business, for the most part, and advisors are really behind this curve. Would you agree? Well, I think we're seeing improvements, but yeah, indeed, I, I would agree. There's still so many financial advisors who are basically, they think of themselves as investment managers, and they fail to really understand the distinction about how the investment problem changes post-retirement. And yeah, being able to layer in, especially with taxes and, and with all the different tools available for retirees, those who are focused only on managing an investment portfolio, those advisors are really being left behind in this process and are not equipped to help their retired clients. So let's talk about some of the strategies to reduce risk. You know, you mentioned that as folks be, leave the stage where they're accumulating assets and now are either in decumulation or preservation mode, um, what are some of the strategies that you see, and I, I know you talk about many of them in the course, but for in, in, in layperson's terms, what are the kinds of strategies that ought to be explored as options in that process? Well, I, I kind of outline things as there's these two different schools of thought about how to approach retirement income and different financial advisors fall into each of the camps as well as individuals, like individual retirees. They may not really be quantifying things in their mind this way, but they'll be more comfortable with either the probability-based approach is what I call the, the type of financial advisor who is more comfortable with investments and using an aggressive asset allocation. And so this is where things like the 4% rule of thumb come from, that if you have a 50 to 75% stock allocation throughout retirement, you should be able to withdraw 4% of your retirement assets and sustain that level, the living standard throughout your retirement. That's based on investments. And then the other approach I call the safety first approach, which is going to look more holistically, not just at the investment portfolio, but all the household assets and think about having reliable income resources, having the diversified portfolio, and then having reserve assets for other unexpected contingencies. And in that approach, you're willing to think more about not just investments, but also a role for things like annuities, even reverse mortgages, all these different tools that are out there, just thinking more holistically about how they can fit together and not just relying on the idea that the stock market will always outperform bonds and therefore it's easy to fund retirement just by relying on an aggressive investment portfolio. 
I remember, um, well, obviously, I remember the Y2K bubble, and then I remember the Great Recession. None of us will forget it. But in 2007, there was a great belief that real estate could never go down either. <laughs> and we, we found that not to be true also. Um, so so there, there are lots of these schools of thought. And one of the things that, that we try to do, and, and I'll, I'll stress test some of our theories with you, and you're welcome to, to beat on them if you'd like. That's why we're here. But uh, we use an asset segregation strategy where we, we aim to have a, a certain number of years of income set aside. And it can be as long as 10, depending on the, on the couple, on the person, on the family, and the situation so that it's a permission slip to still maintain some equity exposure, but not to have to be withdrawing in a bad market. Is that a, a, a is just from f foundationally, do you see that strategy being employed? Yeah, that's definitely a, a strategy that can work. It has various names like bucketing or time segmentation, but it, it can help to manage the, it's called sequence of returns risk. It's when you're in retirement and you're spending from your portfolio, if you're put into a position where you have to sell assets after they've declined in value, then that creates a problem and digs a hole for the portfolio. And so what you're describing in terms of, for the short run, as you said, up to 10 years, you have those covered with bonds that are often like individual bonds maturing. You're not gonna have to realize any capital losses. And then your growth investments, the, the stocks and so forth, have this window of opportunity where you don't have to sell them off for a certain amount of time. And then you, sh you can be more comfortable that markets will eventually recover after a decline. That sort of approach can be made to work fine and can especially if it helps people with the psychology of retirement of so often when the market goes down, people panic and, and sell their stocks and it's the worst possible time to do that. And psychologically, if you know, well, I can weather through this stock market downturn because I have 10 years of bonds to cover my spending. 10 years should be enough time for the stock market to recover. If that helps people stick to their strategy, then, then yeah, that can be a great way to approach retirement rather than the alternative to that is you just have this asset allocation, 60-40 portfolio or whatever the case may be and you're drawing from that portfolio on a total returns basis. It can be harder for people to implement that sort of strategy because they don't really understand the role that bonds are playing versus in the time segmented approach you described. So one of the things you mentioned was reverse mortgages. And there are very few financial vehicles that scare people, mostly due to lack of good, solid information and, and education. And reverse mortgages aren't new. They're just being, uh, they're, they're becoming more prevalent. Um, and they're perceived by the public, I think, as expensive and misunderstood. And there's a great fear that someone could lose their home and, and so forth. Talk a little bit about, because I, I know you, you wrote a book on reverse mortgages and how to use them to secure retirement. I happen to think that they're not a good or bad tool. They can be the right solution for a family or the wrong solution for a family. So talk a little bit about them in, in lay terms about just not only how they work, but but how we can overcome some of the confusion around them, you know, because I think there's a there's a great deal of that. Mm -hmm. So, in in the simplest terms, reverse mortgage would just provide a way to create create liquidity for the home, so that 
just like you can spend from an investment portfolio. Well, with your home, you can't really spend from it. It's this asset that you can't really touch. But the reverse mortgage creates the ability that you can now spend from the home in the same way that you can spend from the investment portfolio. And the research that really got the ball moving with how a reverse mortgage could help to a financial plan is to have a coordinated strategy. It, like you explained with using bonds for short-term expenses, the idea with the reverse mortgage is you don't want to have to sell your stocks at a loss. And so if your portfolio looks to be in trouble, don't just not spend that year, but draw from the reverse mortgage as a, it's a buffer asset to cover the spending in the short term and to try to give the portfolio more opportunity to recover. And that sort of approach can, can really help the retirement plan because it helps to preserve the investment portfolio. And it is true that reverse mortgages can be expensive to set up, but the benefits you get by helping to protect your portfolio that way have a good shot at working better, giving you more at the end net of the cost of the reverse mortgage so that you can more effectively meet your spending goals and preserve a greater legacy at the end as well, even after accounting for the costs of the reverse mortgage, which especially since a rule change in October 2017 did make the reverse mortgage more expensive to set up. There are, um, historically, the retirement picture was referred to tongue-in-cheek as a three-legged stool, where you had your defined benefit pension from the, the either your government employer or your um, private employer, you had Social Security, and you had your own personal savings. Um, let's talk a little bit about pensions because they are far more rare. Certainly the, the pensions in the, in, the, in the private sector have become more rare. And in the public sector, there's a, an awful lot of press around uh, the sustainability and the, the coverage rates and all those kinds of things. Where's the pension ball going? Is, is, are they going to exist in 25 years? Well, we're getting to the stage that younger workers, because at some point many companies closed them off, so the the workers who are already in the system established may have their pension. But yeah, we're getting to see more and more where people retiring today may not have that much. Well, we like a pension, a traditional company pension. The company managed the market risk and the longevity risk of figuring out how long the money needs to last, and they could do that by pooling that risk. They could pool market risk across different cohorts of workers who are working and retiring at different points in time. And they could pool the longevity risk by just knowing some people won't live as long, but other people will live longer. And so they can figure out how much can the average person spend to keep the, the pension running in an average outcome with an average life expectancy and with average market returns. And they could really manage that process by pooling that risk across all their workers then we saw the development of the 401k plan, which sometimes gets called a pension, but it, it's not a pension in that traditional sense. It's an investment portfolio with, with tax benefits and may have an employer match, but at the end of the day, you as the worker become responsible for figuring out the investment strategy and for figuring out how to spend from that portfolio in retirement. And you don't have any way to pool that risk anymore with other workers, unless you were to buy an annuity. But if you just stick with the investment options available, you don't have a way to pool that risk. You have to plan, well, what if I live to 90, 95, or 100? What if I get bad market returns in retirement? And then you just have to spend less to not run out of money. 
and it's not as an effective way to approach retirement than with the risk pooling traditional company pension. So people have to replace that leg of the stool. They don't have those increasingly or less likely to have those traditional company pensions anymore. So, so you mentioned uh, annuities, which are about as popular as reverse mortgages in social circles <laughs> for lots of reasons. Some of them, some of them, uh, rightfully so, uh, but some of them perhaps, perhaps not. And there are lots of different kinds. And this isn't necessarily the the, the forum for that, but. Um, there's a lot of confusion around whether you have to annuitize and what it means if you do and what it means if you don't and are you giving up control. Um, and now with the SECURE Act that just passed uh, January 1, the, the thought that annuities are going to become options and in fact be mandated in uh, 401k plans um, is, uh, while, I, while I realize that's uh, so new it hasn't been fully researched, but I would anticipate the law of intended, unintended consequences will play some role here, um, and this is going to make plans even more complicated, cumbersome, and possibly expensive. Annuities scare people like like reverse mortgages. Where can people learn about them without learning about them from a salesperson? Because that, that really is not necessarily your best bet. Mm-hmm. And you're right. One of the provisions of this new SECURE Act that, that passed at the end of 2019 is employers will now be protected from if they provide annuities in their 401k plans and then something happens to the annuity company the employer won't be on the hook to to support the promises that the insurance company had made as long as they do their due diligence about it Uh, so it is it is hard to learn about annuities and part of the problem is the consumer media when they write about them they often mix and match there's different kinds of annuities and each have different advantages and disadvantages but the composite created in the media often takes the disadvantages of different types of annuities so the the loss of liquidity with an immediate annuity combined with the high fees of the variable annuity and and creates an image of something that doesn't really exist and in terms of where to learn about annuities i I did in october i published a book called safety first retirement planning where I, I have a chapter that, three different chapters explaining in detail how each of the three major types of annuities work, the, the income annuities, the variable annuities, and the fixed index annuities. So I hope that can be a great resource for people to really get, get their head wrapped around how different types of annuities can, can work and what kind of role they can play in a retirement plan as well. So let's move on to the second leg of the proverbial stool, because we already have only two, which it's already going to topple over. But now let's talk about Social Security um, and, and not in a political way, per se, but just in a realistic way. Um, there are folks who are making bad Social Security mistakes, many of which are not undoable anymore um, or not for as long. And Social Security is very much misunderstood but it's also something that creates a lot of fear and trepidation from folks who believe it's going to at some point go away. Um, and while I certainly anticipate changes and don't necessarily want to guess what they'll be, I anticipate there will be changes to the program. What would you say? What do you say to a millennial who says, I'm paying FICA, but am I ever going to see Social Security myself? Um, right. So at some stage, if there is no reform, it's not that Social Security will disappear, but there'll only be enough inflows to cover, it changes every year, but about 70 to 75% of the promised benefits. 
And so for my own planning, that that's what I assume, that just whatever the Social Security Administration anticipates I would get as a benefit, I'll, I'll count 70% of that as, as part of my financial plan. Uh, Social Security is not gonna disappear, and it is a very important part of the retirement puzzle in terms of, it's a lot of money, and if you just assume you're not gonna get any of it, <laughs> it makes the planning really difficult so there, there's also the sense the last major reform of Social Security happened in 1983, and that's when we were in this same sort of situation where there wasn't enough money coming in to pay for the promised benefits. And so they had to do something, and that's where the retirement age was raised, but it went going gradually from 65 to 67, but it was people who were 23 years old at the time that would be hit by the the age 67. So it was a very gradual process. And people who are at least closer to retirement shouldn't anticipate too major of changes to their social security benefits. There could be minor tweaks, but, but nothing too significant, especially anyone older than 50 or so could probably anticipate getting most of their promised social security benefits. And then that speaks to the issue as well about when they should claim their benefits you get the increased benefit by delaying your claiming age. And the rules to de define that were set in 1983 when interest rates were a lot higher and when people were not living as long. So that today, especially for couples, the high earner in that couple should seriously think about delaying their social security benefit to age 70 because they're quite likely to live past the age where that becomes a benefit to them in terms of they're getting benefits for fewer years by waiting, but the increase in the benefit they receive subsequently, as long as they make it past their, er their early 80s, which they're likely to do, they're gonna be better off by delaying social security. And so, especially couples where both individuals take their benefits at age 62, that can be a very costly mistake that if you end up living a long time, could, could add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in difference between claiming at 62 versus waiting at least for the high earner until age 70 to claim. How, how do you see uh, life insurance playing a role in retirement income planning or generation? Do you see a role for permanent life insurance? Well, yeah, so I, I come from the investments world myself. So I've had to learn about different types of insurance as I go along. And, and I have looked at especially whole life insurance as a retirement tool as well. And, and found, yeah, there can be a few effective ways versus what the investments world says is before you retire, you should just buy term insurance and invest the difference because you don't need life insurance in retirement. But I've compared that to, well, what if you do have permanent life insurance? The premiums will be higher, so you'll have less investment assets in retirement but the different ways you can incorporate the permanent life insurance into your planning can lead to better outcomes. And that's some possibilities include, if you have permanent life insurance, you don't have to build the life insurance into any annuity. You can buy a, a single life instead of a joint life annuity. You don't need to build in refund provisions or other things in, because the life insurance would serve as a backup to that. Or you can think about the life insurance as a buffer asset, and it's the same style with a reverse mortgage where the cash value of the life in, of a whole life insurance policy doesn't decline in value and can provide a resource to draw from temporarily after market downturns to help preserve the portfolio. 
And so that's another approach that can work effectively as well to help support a spending goal in an efficient way so that you have more legacy at the end as well. That you're, Even though we think of some of these tools as expensive, reverse mortgages, life insurance, annuities, and so forth, the benefits can outweigh the costs when you have a strategic way to incorporate them into the retirement plan. So, so now we've got this this three-legged stool for boomers. Millennials are expecting a different picture, which is a yo-yo, which stands for you're on your own. Um, because what used to be a, a need to save 10 or 20% um, uh, to, to build a nest egg that could provide 10 to 20% of your income, it's now more like 50 to 70% in, in a lot of cases or more, um, particularly for folks who are, who are of, of means, upper middle class and, and, uh, and wealthy people. Social Security winds up being a bit of a footnote um, and so, of course, that's politically why it, it could be easy to, to harm them in some way in favor of, of a bigger group. And I don't want to wax political today, for sure. But um, I, I, I do think that's an, an easy place for, for cuts to happen in a, in, a, in a popular vote kind of situation. So mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about some of the research that you're doing now and what's the next I can't ask for the next aha. If you knew that, you'd already publish it. But but are there are there things being worked on? I know there's been a lot of conversation about the four percent rule, and you mentioned earlier that's that's not necessarily always the the best rule to follow. What's the next type of research? Is it is it long term care? Is it longevity planning? I mean, I, I've read that the most the biggest risk all of us face now is living too long. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So needing to have that sort of plan about what's the best way to manage that longevity risk and, and also the the market volatility and yeah we i think at this point we we know what the options are you can just spend less you can be flexible with your spending you can reduce the volatility but not that doesn't mean simply going in bonds what you suggested was one of the possibilities there where you reduce the volatility by having bonds for your short-term expenses and stocks for your long-term expenses. Or you can have one of these buffer asset approaches like a reverse mortgage or life insurance. And I think we, we kind of, we're now at the point where we know what these options are and we just need to dig further into kind of scenarios of which works best for who and, and who's gonna be more comfortable with what and, <laughs> and how do you build an overall plan around these options to, to give something that people can can manage and can feel comfortable with and, and can work for their retirements. One of the things we espouse on this show and that we sort of try and hammer home is that traditional retirement isn't good for you and that this idea of retreating and disappearing, um, it, it, first, people don't thrive. And if you don't have a reason <laughs> to get out of bed every morning, you eventually stop getting out of bed every morning. So um, there's also this concept of working longer. We've had guests on the show who are uh, in their 80s who are working in some really neat ways, not necessarily even because they need the money, although it, it helps, but because it gives them a sense of purpose and a, and a, reason, to, a, a reason to keep going and a, and a connection to people. And are, are you seeing working longer being a, a, a truly legitimate um, need, or are you seeing it more or less being a want in a lot of cases for folks who maybe have hit financial independence, but risk being bored for 30 years of shuffleboard? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think everyone's got a, a different situation there. And it's probably the people who are already the most prepared for retirement 
may have the easiest time continuing to work in retirement. It could be because they love what they do. Or once you have the financial independence, you just also have the flexibility to try something different or, or work for a lower salary. Because again, if you're not needing it for the money, it's more doing something that you believe in. And, and if you are falling behind in a retirement plan, to the extent that you can work, that is an incre- incredibly powerful way to help improve the financial circumstances to reduce the need to spend from your assets because you've got part of that covered through continuing work of some kind. Yeah, it it can really help. And if you have the financial independence, you then have the flexibility to decide what you're going to do. And and even like you could think of charity as like giving, donating time as a way you're not necessarily being paid for that. But yeah, being active in your community, having a sense of purpose, that's a, a great part of the retirement, whether or not it's needed for the financial reasons, but just because of the, the psychological benefits it can provide. I have one more question for you before we get to your extra credit assignment, and we're wrapping up. I wish we had a longer show because I, I could ask you questions all day, and, and I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the the FIRE movement, this idea of reaching financial independence early, either through uh, outrageously high savings or investment rates or uh, or very simple or inexpensive lifestyles or some combination. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of reaching financial independence at a young age such that work is optional really early on in your adult life. What's the academic take on that or what's your take on that in terms of its viability and, and, and practicality? Um, well, I, I think, yeah, I kind of feel like in some way I'm kind of... <laughs> Not not fully in in that movement, but but thinking along those lines, I, I think for people who are going down that route, who may achieve financial independence by thirty five, forty, fifty, a lot I see that community talk about the four percent rule, and one thing they need to understand is that four percent rule was never meant for a younger person. It's specifically if your retirement's going to be thirty years at most, and so if you're forty years old. You might still have a 60 years 60 years ahead of you so don't do something like the four percent rule you need to have a plan for health insurance and you need to just have flexibility whether that flexibility is to work part-time or whether that flexibility is to cut spending you can't just rely on something like the four percent rule if you're looking at a 40 50 60 year long retirement but certainly just having that financial independence to the extent that it gives you that ability to just kind of manage your time and and you can turn down projects if you don't want to do them. There's nothing wrong with having that sort of target. It's just don't take the traditional retirement planning advice designed for 65 year olds and assume it applies to 40 year olds. That would be the the biggest thing I could say there (laughs) in a short amount of time. Terrific. Thank you so much. All right. We, we're at that point in our show where, um, and you're in academia, you know, nobody likes homework, but everybody likes extra credit. So how, how can we distill this half an hour together into one actionable that listeners can take as a, as a step either toward financial independence or towards uh, income planning or education or any of those things? Um, what would your extra credit assignment be for our listeners? Uh, well, if there are listeners who are thinking mostly about investments for retirement, to just kind of a first step could be, well, think agnostically and, and look at some of the alternatives. And so I, a lot of the writing I've done ends up in, in Forbes columns where I've even the books I've written, 
I kind of serialize out as Forbes columns. And so look at some of the introductory articles about annuities, reverse mortgages, life insurance, to just not necessarily be sure you're going to use those tools, but to just kind of understand a little bit better about how they work and what kind of role they could play and, and how approaching just investments as a way to fund retirement isn't always the best approach to take. Excellent advice. Dr. Fowl, thank you so much for being on our show. How can folks reach you or read up on you if they'd like to learn more? Oh, yeah. So my website is retirementresearcher.com, all one word, retirementresearcher.com. And and so I have a weekly email people can sign up for. And then I've, I've written three books now as well that they can learn about from that website as well. Excellent. We'll make sure to put that in our show notes. Uh, I thank you for joining us uh, on our show today. You've been a great guest. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So for all our listeners, Don't Retire, Graduate will be back in two weeks with another engaging guest. Please go to our website at don'tretiregraduate.com. Subscribe to our podcast. Post comments about it. We'd love to hear from you. So for now, this is Eric Brotman saying, Don't Retire, Graduate. From this day forward. Let us begin visualizing our dreams and building our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at don'tretiregraduate.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.